Man's time here is finite, but the influence of a man is infinite. The question is what shall we do with the daylight that remains? What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Build the Life You Want podcast. My name is Bronson Wilkes, and I am the founder and host. We've got a good one for you today. This is called Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as if Your Life Depended on It by Chris Voss. I've read this book a couple times. It's, of course, a sales book or negotiations book, and it's the best one I'm aware of. I've read I've read a handful of sales and marketing books, and this one was by far the best book I've ever read on uh, negotiation. And it makes sense, right? Chris Voss was the lead hostage negotiator for the FBI for, I think, 14 years, maybe 15. So he's got a bit of uh, intense experience under his belt, and he was also involved with developing some of these strategies, some of them were developed by other people or implemented over time through the FBI. Uh, they came from college professors, experience in the field, a variety of different places. But this is a consolidation of the strategies that the FBI uses in hostage negotiation. Now, this is 10 chapters of very, very detailed negotiating strategies and tactics and um, you have to read the book, okay? So I'm going to give you a few highlights here and and kind of entice you in, show you what kind of value is here. But you're going to have to study this one like it's a textbook and really, really learn to implement these strategies. So let's jump in. I'm actually going to read a bit of the first chapter and give you a, a feel of what goes on here because he gives a lot of his own uh, real world experience as he also explains these tactics and, and where they came from, when they came into play, and why they're important. The new rules. I was intimidated. I spent more than two decades in the FBI, including 15 years negotiating hostage situations from New York to the Philippines and the Middle East, and I was on top of my game. At any given time, there are 10,000 FBI agents in the Bureau but only one lead international kidnapping negotiator. That was me. But I'd never experienced a hostage situation so tense, so personal. We've got your son, Voss. Give us $1 million or he dies. Pause, blink, mindfully urge the heart rate back to normal. Sure, I'd been in these types of situations before. Tons of them. Money for lives but not like this, not with my son on the line, not $1 million, and not against people with fancy degrees and a lifetime of negotiating expertise. You see, the people across the table, my negotiating counterparts, were Harvard Law School negotiating professors. So he kind of tricks you, but uh, he goes into this negotiation with these, these experienced Harvard Law professors, and they challenge his tactics, and he basically whoops them. He flusters both of them despite their best efforts. And then they kind of go like, all right, where do you learn these things? What did you just do to us? Right? So one of his strategies that we'll learn about more is he says, how am I supposed to do that? So he asks open-ended questions without saying no, that basically make the hostage taker 
do the work for him, right? Try and solve my problem. Okay, you want a million dollars, but you know that I don't just have a million dollars right now. And how would I give, why would I give you a million dollars if I don't even know he's alive, right? So it's like, how would I do that? Or how can I do that if I don't even know my son is alive, right? He says, I'm sorry, Robert. How do I know he's even alive? I said, using an apology and his first name, seeding more warmth into the interaction in order to complicate his gamut to bulldoze me. I really am sorry, but how can I get you any money right now, much less $1 million, if I don't even know he's alive? I was employing what had become one of the FBI's most potent negotiating tools, the open-ended question. Today, after some years evolving these tactics for the private sector in my consultancy, the Black, the Black Swan Group, we call this tactic calibrated questions. You can essentially continue to say no kindly and... Um, give them kind of a good reason why, while you're apologetic, you're non-confrontational, you want to be cooperative, but how could I possibly do this, right? So the FBI went through many phases of negotiating and and early in, in the negotiation days, it was much more of a bulldozer strategy. You know, we've got armies, we've got guns, give us the hostages or we're coming in shooting kind of thing, right? And that eventually went to, we can't just try and shoot everybody all the time. We need to try and get them out. And so they went for like a tit for tat sort of thing. We'll give you some of the money, maybe not all that you wanted. We'll give you half or whatever. And you give us the hostages. It's kind of win-win as as they said, right? And eventually they got to a place where they wanted (laughs) win-lose. They wanted to, to take as much as they could and give as little as they could. And they found a way to do it. And it actually resulted in less deaths and more um, successful outcomes, right? So they, they figured this out through appealing to the hostage takers' emotions, finding out their desires, figuring out kind of who they were, what they wanted, what was the backstory into this? Were they just gangsters? Were they trying to have a good time on the weekend and wanted money? Uh, Were they warlords? Like you kind of got to figure this out, right? So one of the stories he tells us is one of his first uh, experiences as the actual negotiator is uh, a bank robbery in New York. And uh, he kind of weaves that into some of these strategies where the bank, the bank robber had some help, but the, the help, they didn't know this initially, but the help did not sign up for it really. They thought they were going to go like, uh, rob a, what do you call it? An ATM. (laughs) And then he kind of tricked them and suddenly they have hostages and someone's knocked out and zip tied in the basement. And they got a couple of, uh, tellers there and they are full on robbing a bank. And so the guy in charge was actually quite smart and he kept a lot of secrets. He wouldn't stay on the phone long. He, uh, really had a lot of deceit going on. And, uh, after several hours of discussion, finally someone else got on the phone and they kind of figured out like, okay, he does at least have one other person. They found out that the the uh, getaway car took off earlier and that the person that was helping him didn't actually want to be there. And so he actually conceded some information and came out. So he weaves these stories in. One of them is in the Philippines where it was a disaster, multiple different agencies and governments involved, uh, death and all kinds of crazy stuff. So 
the stories alone are worth reading, but then understanding what he means by tactical empathy and those kinds of things really come out when, when you, you feel it in the story. All right. So back to the book, he says, emotions and emotional intelligence would have to be central to effective negotiation, not things to be overcome. What we were needed, what were needed were simple psychological tactics and strategies that worked in the field to calm people down, establish rapport, gain trust, elicit the verbalization of needs and persuade the other guy of our empathy, right? So they, they went through these phases and eventually started understanding like, we need a higher level of emotional intelligence to persuade these people, right? And, and that's what he's talking about here. In the early years, the FBI experimented with both new and old therapeutic techniques developed by the counseling profession. These counseling skills were aimed at developing positive relationships with people by demonstrating an understanding of what they're going through and how they feel about it. So you don't typically think of that type of a scenario in a hostage negotiation, right? That feels like sitting in the therapist's office and they're saying, okay, what's your, you know, what are you going through? And I, I understand. And here's some ideas that we could talk about, right? It's like, now that you got off your chest, they're essentially starting to implement these things in the FBI dealing with head chopping, you know, uh, terrorists that are kidnapping people and it works. So one thing that I've found interesting is that the same strategies work with kind of everybody. Now I've, I've mentioned this in other podcasts, like, uh, this book up here, Leadership Strategy and Tactics by Jocko Willink. I've heard Jocko talking about how, uh, you know, these guys that sign up to be Navy SEALs are not just like pushovers. They're not waiting for somebody to tell them what to do. In fact, it's quite the opposite in most cases, right? And so how do you get them to follow your lead? You've got to really appeal to their emotional state, understand where they came from, what they're going through, why they're here, what motivates them. And then you can ask, right? You can see if you can get them to move. Um, Same thing in this negotiations book, you're dealing with these kidnappers and terrorists. You got to kind of appeal to their emotional state, show them that you have empathy and you understand where they're coming from, what their needs are, what their desires are, and why they're doing what they're doing. And then in the therapy office, in like Brene Brown's books, where she's talking about um, shame and how to kind of overcome shame and be vulnerable and all this stuff. It's like similar strategies across the entire gamut of human beings. So the FBI started incorporating this and they started having more and more success. So I'm skipping to chapter four now and he says, beware of yes, master no. So he actually likes to get to know first, which is very interesting. And the way he explains it is is really good. Um, He says, at the end of the day, yes is often a meaningless answer that hides deeper objections and maybe is even worse. Push hard for a yes does not get get a negotiator any closer to a win. It just angers the other side. So if yes can be so damn uncomfortable and no such a relief, why have we fetishized one and demonized the other? We have it backwards. 
for good negotiators, no is pure gold. He says, yes and maybe are often worthless, but no always alters the conversation. No is the start of the negotiation, not the end of it. We've been conditioned to fear the word no, but it is a statement of perception far more often than of of fact. It seldom means I have considered all the facts and made a rational choice. Instead, no is often a decision frequently temporary to maintain the status quo. Change is scary and no provides a little protection from the scariness. Jim Camp, in his excellent book, Start With No, counsels the reader to give their adversary, his word for counterpart, permission to say no from the outset of a negotiation. He calls it the right to veto. He observes that people will fight to the death to preserve their right to say no, so give them that right and the negotiating environment becomes more constructive and collaborative almost immediately. It comes down to the deep and universal human need for autonomy. People need to feel in control. When you preserve a person's autonomy by clearly giving them permission to say no to your ideas, the emotions calm. When you preserve a person's autonomy by clearly giving them permission to say no to your ideas, the emotions calm, the effectiveness of the decisions go up, and the other party can really look at your proposal. They're allowed to hold hold it in their hands to turn it around and gives you time to elaborate or pivot in order to convince your counterpart that the change you're proposing is more advantageous than the status quo. Great negotiators seek no because they know that's often when the real negotiation begins. So just let the other side know that they're, they're welcome to say no. And he gives examples of this and how you can do it, right? So he says, this means you have to train yourself to hear no as something other than rejection and respond accordingly. When someone tells you no, you need to rethink the word in one of these alternatives and much more real meanings. So this is what other, this is what the word no could actually mean. I'm not ready to agree. You are making me feel uncomfortable. I don't understand. I don't think I can afford it. I want something else. I need more information or I want to talk it over with someone else, right? And all these make sense when you're thinking about trying to sell somebody or negotiate uh, something, some difficult problem. They may just want to have some time to think it over. They want to have a little power. They're feeling hesitant, scared, whatever. And so it's easier just to say, no, 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 no. I'm not ready to move. I don't have all the information. I haven't thought it over. I feel uncomfortable. All those things are no. But give them that chance to do that, feel in control, no is an option, all right. Then moving forward, you can start to figure out what their fears are. Can you calm that fear? Do they need to talk to somebody? Can you figure that out, right? Now you're starting to move. As you can see, no has a lot of skills. No allows the real issues to be brought forth. No protects people from making and lets them correct ineffective decisions. No slows things down so that people can freely embrace their decisions and agreements they enter into. No helps people feel safe, secure, emotionally comfortable, and in control of their decisions. No moves everyone's efforts forward. All right, I'm going to give you an example of the yes-no dynamic here that he gives in the book, and then we'll move on. So this is like 
calling for a fundraiser, right? He says, fundraiser. Hello, can I speak to Mr. Smith? Mr. Smith. Yes, this is he. Fundraiser. I'm calling for the XYZ committee and I wanted to ask you a few important questions about your views on our economy today. Do you feel that if things stay the way they are, America's best days are ahead of it? Mr. Smith. No, things will only get worse. Fundraiser. Are you going to sit and watch President Obama take the White House in November without putting up a fight? Mr. Smith, no, I'm going to do anything I can to make sure that doesn't happen. Fundraiser, if you want to do something today to make sure that doesn't happen, you can give to XYZ Committee, which is working hard to fight for you. He says, see how clearly the swaps yes for no and offers to take a donation if Mr. Smith wants. It puts Mr. Smith in the driver's seat. He's in charge and it works. In a truly remarkable turnaround, the no orientation script got a 23% better rate of return in this fundraising thing. So when they asked people for yeses, here, I'll give you the example of the yes. Hello, can I speak to Mr. Smith? Yes, this is he. I'm calling for XYZ committee and I want to ask you a few important questions. Do you believe that the gas prices are currently too high? Yes, gas prices are too high and hurting my family. Do you believe that the Democrats are part of the problem when it comes to high gas prices? Yes, President Obama is a bad person. Do you think we need to change in November? Yes, I do. Can you give me your credit card number so you can be a part of the change? So when you keep going for yes, it's sort of like, it feels like you're uh, telling me what you want me to say, and then I'm not in control. I'm just following your your horse, right? So the no gives the other person a lot of power, even though you're still planting the ideas, the seeds, you're guiding the question and you're discovering what you need to know. All right, let's move on. Trigger the two words that immediately transform any negotiation. And those two words are, that's right. And essentially you're mirroring them. You're, you're saying what they said to you in different words and you're shooting for a, that's right. When you get a that's right from the hostage taker or the other person you're negotiating with, that lets them know and you know that you understand them. And that's what they want. They want to be understood. So they feel some dramatic dichotomy in their life. They've not been visible enough. They don't have enough power or control. And now here you are saying back to them what they want and desire. And they say, that's right. You've just connected on a whole new level. So he says, trigger a that's right with a summary. So you summarize and then you get back. And here's the, the um, script or uh, six-step process. So number one is effective pause. Silence is very powerful. And there's a whole paragraph under that. Number two, minimal encouragers. Besides silence, we instructed using simple phrases such as yes, okay, uh-huh, I see. Number three, mirroring. Rather than argue, just say what they said. Labeling. Label their feelings, their name, right? Paraphrase. And then summarize. And once you summarize, you should be able to get a that's right. And now you're on a whole new level. Under this chapter, Bend Their Reality, there are multiple subheadings that are just incredibly impactful. 
I'll give you a few ideas of what he's saying. So he says, how to discover the emotional drivers behind what the other party values. So think of this, like, what does a babysitter sell? Really? You know, of course, they're selling child services, but they're selling a relaxing evening for parents, right? What does a furnace salesperson sell? A cozy room for the family time, right? A locksmith sells a feeling of security. So you're sort of trying to tap into these emotions behind the thing when you're negotiating and, and selling. Um, under the section, bend their reality. He says, in a tough negotiation, it's not enough to show the other party that you can deliver the thing they want. To get real leverage, you have to persuade them that they have something concrete to lose if the deal falls through. <laughs> So you're trying to create a certain amount of risk and then so you could identify that risk and then explain sort of why if they don't take this deal, this could fall through. Now, you got to be careful about that, right? Because it it could turn into your, you being very pushy again. And as, as we learned earlier, you don't want to be pushing people around. You want to coax them in to this and understand their fears and then solve their problems, right? And so in the end, you've created a new fear, which is if I don't take advantage of this opportunity, I'm going to lose out. Something is at risk here. He goes into negotiating salary and numbers. So it's interesting because numbers have interesting features about them, not just the value they have or the lucky number, right? But you can prime people and then come to a, uh, an agreement. So when you're negotiating salary, rather than just throw out the number you're looking for, throw out a range with a, a, a number that's much higher than the number you're looking for. And then the low end of the range would be more like what you're looking for because they're going to counter with the low end of your range. But in contrast to that high number on the top end of the range, the low number looks uh, pretty attractive to them. And so uh, when you're negotiating your salary, throw out, you know, uh, others in, you know, top performers in this industry make between 130 and 170. And now they're going like, well, that's kind of, that is true. However, this is not a top performer. You're just getting hired. Okay, let's, let's go 127. <laughs> right. And so they're kind of like, mm, got to stay close to that range because that's what they're expecting. But they're not like they're not worthy of the high end. They haven't earned it yet. They give you exactly what you wanted. Uh, so the priming thing works. But then also when you actually make an offer. So if you're the one that's being squeezed or whatever, like you have to make the payment, right? And you're bringing that number down. They say, you know, I want 50 grand and you say, I'll give you 25. And they say, what about 40? And you say, you know, so in the end, you want to, you want to make an offer that's like, I'll give you $27,532. What a like detailed number, right? And it makes it feel like you've really calculated that out and you literally can't give any more. And then once you've done that, you know, whatever that number was, $27,532, and I'll throw in the blah, right? Something that's not 
like money. I'll throw in this extra service or I'll throw in this, um, you know, if you're a car salesman, I'll throw in the bed line or, or whatever, right? So it's like a non-monetary thing, but it, again, it feels like you're grasping at straws, pulling the last of what you have to offer. And it makes the other person think like, well, I've got all the money they can offer. I guess I'll take the deal, right? And so uh, use those strategies as you're negotiating. Create the illusion of control. He goes through this horrifying event in the Philippines where multiple hostages were taken by true terrorists. There was like 15 or so hostages, different countries. There were a few Americans in there. And so that's why he got pulled in. So you got the FBI uh, working on it, but then you have like the Philippines and there was like the Philippines military, the Philippines government. And as things went on, they kept, they were left in the dark all they could do was text message like the the Philippines negotiator who was not allowing them to do much. It turns out there were all kinds of backdoor deals and that they had these people surrounded, but then somebody went and got a briefcase and then rallied the troops. And at that moment, the hostages escaped with all the, uh, or the um, kidnappers escaped with all their hostages. And it's like, what the heck, right? So they were obviously paid off. And, um, anyway, chaos, he explains it as a lot of chaos. And in the end, a lot of people died. It was a horrible experience. Right. And he says from the ashes of Dos Palamas, then we learned a lesson that would forever change how the FBI negotiated kidnapping. We learned that negotiation was coaxing, not overcoming, co-opting, not defeating. Most important, we learned that successful negotiation involved getting your counterpart to do the work for you and suggest your solution himself. It involved giving him the illusion of control while you, in fact, were the one defining the conversation. The tool we developed is something I call the calibrated or open-ended question. What it does is remove aggression from conversation by acknowledging the other side openly without resistance. In doing so, it lets you introduce ideas and requests without sounding pushy. It allows you to nudge, removing hostility from the statement. I'll explain in depth later on, but for now, let me say that it's really as simple as removing the hostility from the statement. You can't leave and turn into a question, what do you hope to achieve by going? So you can't leave or what do you achieve, hope to achieve by going, right? You're like, I'm just curious. I want to I wanna know. I'm trying to help. I'm trying to be an ally, right? Maybe I can help you achieve that. <laughs> uh, so calibrated how questions are a surefire way to keep negotiations going. They put the sh- pressure on your counterpart to come up with an answer and to complete your problems when making their demands. With enough of the right how questions, you can read and shape the negotiating environment in such a way that you'll eventually get to the answer you want to hear. You just have to have an idea of where you want the conversation to go when you're devising your questions. The trick to how questions is that correctly used, they are gentle and graceful ways to say no and guide your counterpart to develop a better solution. 
your solution. A gentle how slash no invites collaboration and leaves your counterpart with a feeling of having been treated with respect. (laughs) So there's a few examples for you of what he's got in here. I highlighted like almost every page of this book. This is the second time I've read it and I absolutely loved it. His stories are magnificent. His strategies make so much sense. And when he puts them in the context of hostage negotiation, um, as well as his consulting, uh, it just makes so much sense. And I can picture myself in some of my marketing roles where I was like, oh man, I blew it. Now, um, my friend and I, my business partner, uh, we actually had a success story while I was reading this book for the first time. This was a few years ago and we had just gotten into this new gig selling some um, medical devices and it was new to the market. Nobody knew about it. Uh, We didn't really have a budget and there was an event going on in Park City, Utah and all these doctors would be there for this medical uh, seminar and they could get their earned education credits and all this stuff. Right. And so they had this small room with booths in it, uh, with, you know, salespeople. So there was medications and new heart monitors and different things in there. And we wanted a booth in there. And so we're messaging this lady and it was literally like two days after I read, uh, the majority of this book and, uh, they wanted to charge us like, I can't remember 3,500 bucks to have this booth for a day. Uh, but like I said, we didn't have a budget. So, uh, my friend was asking me like, oh man, what should I say? I don't know if I can do that, whatever. I said, just say that, exactly that. I'm not sure. I don't see how I can do that. We're a new company, da, 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 right? She's like, well, how about $1,500? And he's like, she came down a lot. And I was like, yeah, but just say it again. We haven't even offered anything. We haven't told her our budget. We haven't said anything. She already came in half. Just tell her again, you know, we're, we're just getting started. And uh, I, I just don't see how we can do that. He does it again and she just goes, why don't you just tell me how much you can, you can afford? And so we felt good about paying her like three or $400 or something. So we, you know, told her that she was like, okay, sounds good. We'll see you, <laughs> see you this weekend. So we basically made her negotiate against herself by kindly saying no without saying no. And then she brought the price down until the point she was just like, why don't you tell me what you can pay? And, um, since we were on her team, uh, we offered the money and she took it. And so we, we, I've had, uh, a real world success literally from the script of this book. So, um, I'm a, you know, I'm a believer here, but this is an awesome book. Chris Voss tells great stories. He's a, he's an awesome, interesting guy. And, uh, I, don't think you'll regret this one. So I'll put the link to the book in the show notes so you can purchase that from Amazon. Um, We appreciate you guys listening. So if you've gotten value from this episode or any others, please subscribe, leave a review, help us spread this podcast and grow, uh, reach a new audience. And again, we appreciate you listening. Catch you on the next one.
Hey, thanks for listening to the entire episode. As a token of gratitude, I want to give you a discount on my book, Ingrained. Head over to bronsonwilkes.com store and download Ingrained for less than a dollar with the coupon code GOALS, G-O-A-L-S.